Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 8th, 2013, and my guest is Angus Deaton, the Dwight D. Eisenhower Professor of Economics and International Affairs at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs and the Economics Department at Princeton University. His latest book and the subject of today's episode is The Great Escape, Health, Wealth, and the Origins of Inequality. Angus, welcome to EconTalk. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Your book focuses on health and well-being as well as the challenges that come with trying to measure those concepts. Let's start with health. How, how is the world doing? The world's doing a lot better than it ever has in the past, at least on average. Um, and, um, you know, that's the terrific news. The not-so-good news is that a lot of people got left behind and haven't really got there yet. Uh, you suggest that a girl today born, I think – I think you said in the United States, um, yep. has a 50-50 chance of reaching 100 years old. Yeah, that's a guess, but it's not an unreasonable guess. Um, one of the things about projecting mortality like that is it obviously depends. If the girl is born today um, and she gets sick when she's 50, what sort of medical technology, what sort of things will we know then which will help her get through that? And, of course, we don't know that because it's 50 years down the pike. But, you know, there's been a lot of progress over the last 50 years, and if that goes on, that's not an unreasonable supposition. And, of course, I'm talking about a white, middle-class, well-heeled girl, you know, born in the United States today. And as a contrast, you there's a lot of fascinating statistics uh, and, and, and evidence in the book, but one example here is in 1910 – of all the girls born in the United States, 20% died before their fifth birthday. That's one out of five. And only two out of every 5,000 lived to celebrate their 100th birthday. And that's a measure of how much uh, things have improved since 1910. That's right. Um, a lot of that in the early part of the 20th century was um, cleaning up the water supplies, you know, sanitation projects. Um, extending vaccinations out there, all these things that we sort of take for granted now were not around in 1910. Um, one of the things I, I like to tell my students, and um, people are very surprised by this, is, you know, there was a huge revolution at the beginning of the 20th century in how we thought about germs, for instance. Um, hotels in the United States did not use to change sheets between guests. And we would think that was pretty much unthinkable. Um, today. So we really understand and apply in our everyday lives um, the germ theory of disease, and that is responsible for a lot of what happened up until mid-century. Um, after that, you know, other drivers like people quitting smoking um, or much better um, prevention of cardiovascular disease have been very important too. What? How much of the improvement do you attribute or do you think we can attribute to general material well-being, in particular nutrition, um, just uh, having more to eat when we are hungry? Right. Um, that's the $64,000 question, as they used to call it. Um, I mean, I think people have been grappling with that for a long time. Um, I think sort of a third might not be a bad guess, um, though most of it would be loaded up early in the century when there was still a lot of malnutrition um, around. Um, there's this suggestion that if, if you don't really get enough to eat when you're very little, that may predispose you to all sorts of bad things in later life. And so these effects may still be going on now because after all, people in their 70s, you know, were born 70 years ago um, when things were um, really very different. Um, we don't typically think that nutrition is a problem today. In fact, it may be a problem the other way around, um, which is that people are overnutrited rather than undernutrited. And that's been a very controversial topic too, which is the extent to which obesity is going to bring down life expectancy in the future. 
It, it has not done so so far. We've either it's overcome done so it's, much less than one might think. Yeah, and it's hard to find it unless you look really, really carefully. Which is contrary to what you commonly hear. It's generally thought that obesity is is bad for your health. It's bad for your heart. It's bad for who knows what else. But you, the evidence is a little bit um, ambiguous. Well, I mean, that, I think that is true. Um, what you just said that obesity does come with a lot of health risks. Um, what is somewhat surprising is there's been a big increase in obesity, and yet mortality rates. Um, keep going down. That may be because they're being offset by other things, or it right. may be that the penalties of obesity are not as large as they once were. Um, in particular, um, doctors are very much better at prescribing antihypertensives than used to be the case, and it may be that the, one of the routes that obesity um, killed people um, was through high blood pressure, and if you're taking daily meds that prevent that from happening, the penalty from obesity may be somewhat less than we used to think it was. Now, as you point out in the book, and as you just alluded to, a lot of the gains in longevity come from, in the first part of the century, came from reducing infant mortality due right. to uh, better water, um, better understanding of of just the whole medical system, the body, et cetera, and, and childbirth. Uh, now, most of those gains have been exhausted in the developed world, not in the rest of the world. So what is the prospect for future improvements? Where are they going to come from? You mean in the rich countries? Correct. Yeah. I think um, they're obviously going to have to happen among older people. Just by the obverse of what you said, it used to be young people. Now the young people don't die very much. Um, so um, they're going to be among the older people. I think if I had to bet, um, the war against cancer may actually be showing some results at last. So that's the great hope um, for the future, that cancer will yield over the next 50 years in the way that cardiovascular disease has yielded over the past 50 years. And I hope we'll still get improvements in cardiovascular disease too. Um, but the, the cancer thing comes with a, a darker side too, which is most of the treatments for cancer are extremely expensive. And, you know, we face all sorts of problems about funding them. Maybe we'll figure out some cheaper methods. <clears throat> Maybe. <laughs> could be. Yeah. We could use some incentives to finding cheaper methods. I think that's something that's missing from our current healthcare system. I could not agree more. Yeah. Now, you allude to a remarkable uh, chart, uh, diagram from, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the names correctly, Jim Open and James Vopel. Yep. Uh, that calculated the world's highest life expectancy for women in each year starting in 1840. And evidently, that number has risen every year uh, mm -hmm. at a constant rate. So, talk about what, what the, whether that's a meaningful number. Talk, talk about where that number, how that number is calculated, and whether it's meaningful. Because a lot of people would argue that, well, we keep living longer, but there's a limit. And this suggests yep. maybe there's not. Maybe there's not, and that I think is you know a position that Jim Vopel in particular has argued um, over the years. Um, not everybody's buys into that. Um, but on the other hand, he's been certainly continually right in the past. And that chart often comes with various projections that people made in the past saying, you know, 10 years from now we'll be here. But it, the line kept on going up. Um, now, of course, there's no, as they tell you on your stock returns, there's, you know, future, um, <laughs> past returns are no guide to future progress. Um, but, um, you know, there's lots of pressures. People want to live longer. We spend an enormous amount of money on NIH, and presumably that comes about because people want to live longer. And, you know, every time we conquer one disease, there's pressure on to get rid of the next one, which is a lot of pressure on cancer right now. So, you know, if that goes on happening, maybe that chart will go on go on forever. I don't know. No one knows. The magnitude is but, that every four years, uh, it gets extended by a year. Which is Something pretty pretty impressive, isn't it? It's yeah. like I, I like to call it creeping up on immortality. Yeah, um, you know, maybe we'll it's all like live Moore's, forever. It's like day. Moore's law, but better. <laughs> <laughs> but better. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. 
So um, talk about how that number gets measured. And actually, why don't you back up for a minute and talk about where longevity numbers come from to start with? Because it, I think many people find it somewhat bewildering that you can predict. They come from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not sure how much technical detail people want, but it's, it's, um, it's a much more complicated number than it first appears. So the, the notion that people have is life expectancy is simply when you're born, how many years can you expect to live? And, um, you know, these numbers are published for the United States right now, and it's 78 or whatever it is. And, um, you know, but people think that means that for a child born today, that's how long they can expect to live. But that's actually not what it is. And we've already talked about why it can't be that. And the reason, of course, is we don't know how long someone born today is going to live. Even on average. Of course, we don't know. Even a, on average. A particular person. We have to person. wait 100 years to find out, maybe longer than 100 years. So the way they calculate it is they say, okay, um, how long would that child live if they faced today's mortality rates at each age? So it's a very cons- in a world in which health is getting better. It's a very conservative um, number um, in the world of which health is getting worse. Of course, like it did in Africa for much of the after 1990, then it would be you know a very optimistic number. But if there's progress continuing. The life expectancy of birth, which is based on today's epidemiological and medical conditions, is likely to be an underestimate of how long someone can be expected to live, like the girl who might be expected to live to 100 that we talked about earlier. And we've been talking about girls because girls, women tend to live longer than men. They do indeed. They have about half the mortality rate that men do. Which raises an interesting question for an egalitarian, whether we should be spending more on men's health care problems than women's, forgetting the political aspect of it, which, of course, is very important in determining what we spend money on. But uh, it, it is interesting that, that women do live longer than men at current yep. knowledge. There, there's a pretty radical split as to whether people think that's unfair or not. You know, and some people actually do argue that the fact that men live shorter lives than women suggests we're underspending on men's health. Um, a lot of women would argue we've been overspending on men's health for many, many years and that, um, you know, diseases of men got a lot more attention than diseases of women. So I don't know where I sit on that. Um, it would be better if we really knew why these differences exist. And, you know, people say it's biology, but that's just a way of evading <laughs> um, the question. A fancy way of saying I don't know. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. One thing we do know, though, is that the gap between men and women is smaller now than it's been for a very, very long time. And that's because women took up smoking later and they've been slower to quit. Um, so the men's mortality rates from lung cancer have been falling for some time now. And for women, that's much later. And in some countries, especially in Europe, it hasn't really happened at all. Now, let's switch to uh, the poorer countries. You ask uh, what I think is a different $64,000 question. And it's a set of questions, actually. And I'm, I'm going to be combining a couple different quotes, uh, different parts of the book, but they capture the same set of issues. And I want you to respond to them. You ask, what is it that makes it so dangerous to be born in Ethiopia or Mali or Nepal and so safe to be born in Iceland or Japan or Singapore? Why should children die in poor countries when they would not die if they had been born in rich countries? What is it that prevents the knowledge that is freely available and effective in the rich world from saving the lives of millions of people who die in the poor world? So it's a complicated set of questions. What do you think are some of the possible answers? Okay, well, let me let me tell you the one that most people think is. They think it's money. And they think that because these countries are poor, because Mali or Ethiopia are really poor, and they are very, very poor, um, there really isn't money to buy the vaccines or to um, pay for the clinics or the nurses or the regular maternal and child health care that would be required to fix those problems. I actually don't think... To me, that's convincing. It's certainly true that the healthcare sectors in a lot of those countries are pretty lousy. And it's also true that if you had a much better healthcare sector in those countries, it would cost more money. So in that sense, you need more money. 
The issue, though, is if you put more money into these systems as they exist right now, would it make things better? And to me, the answer to that is really no. I think the crucial problem for healthcare in poor countries is the lack of a state of a government that's capable of organizing these things. Um, if you like, it's state capacity that seems to be the crucial missing link, um, not just money. Now, that said, I mean, there's been a huge amount of progress. So, you know, the infant mortality rate in India today is lower than the infant mortality in Edinburgh and Scotland in the year in which I was born there, um, even though India is much poorer than Edinburgh was in 1945. So there's been, you know, a lot of progress. But I think the reason you can't really get there is just because of the lack um, of state capacity of a competent state to regulate the private sector or to provide public sector health care. Well, it partially comes back to what we were talking about before, right? This issue of nutrition and just general material well-being. What aspects of the state do you think are missing or the regulatory framework that are, say, present in the United States? I, I we, we're, we're recording this on a day when the FDA has just announced that it's going to be banning trans fats, a right. um, decision I'm highly skeptical of, but maybe it's a good idea. I don't think it's going to have a big impact on uh, on longevity, but maybe I'm wrong. And in fact, it could go the other way. Uh, but why are you – give me the mechanism by which you think a, a more effective state would play a role in, say, prolonging the, the – reducing infant mortality or extending life in poor countries. Let me first say, if the FDA does ban trans fats, they get banned, right? <laughs> so there That's wouldn't true. be any trans fats after a while. If the government of India banned trans fats, it wouldn't really make any difference because there's no one out there to actually make sure that it happens. So that's the sort of thing I mean by state capacity. Um, if you look at healthcare in India, there most of the visits are actually to the private sector rather than the public sector. So those private sector healthcare. If you look at what those guys do, most of them have no medical qualifications whatsoever. Um, a large fraction of them didn't actually graduate from high school. So, <laughs> you know, you couldn't really do that. Neither you nor I. I presume you're not a medical doctor. But, no, I'm, I'm the um, other kind. I'm the kind that does. I'm the kind yeah. of doctor that doesn't help people, as as some Me say. Me too. Me too. But I mean, it would be as if I could put a shingle up outside my door saying "cancer cured here" sort of idea, and then I could rub garlic into people or something. You know, I wouldn't be able to do that for very long in Princeton, New Jersey. But if I did it in India, no one would ever really come after me because there just isn't the state capacity there um, to really make it work. Um, also, if you look in the clinics in India, there's mass absenteeism. People don't show up for work half the time. And that's true in a lot of poor countries around the world. And once again, there just isn't the capacity, the regulatory mechanism to make that, to stop that happening. You know, healthcare is difficult everywhere. I mean, we know it's really hard in the United States too. Um, so one shouldn't underestimate the difficulty of running a good healthcare system, but it's really hard for governments in poor countries. Let me ask you, though, about that India example. I, you're not suggesting that um, there are a lot of wonderful doctors who are being uh, missed out and avoided by customers who are fooled into thinking that the high school graduate is, is effective. I, I assume the real problem in India is that there aren't that many doctors available that people can afford. Well, they're actually, um, I'm not sure that's the problem, but, but it certainly is true that the more expensive doctors tend to do better. So there's some work that shows that. But, you know, doctors are not very expensive in India. I mean, you know, it doesn't cost that much to go to the doctor. Um, that said, there's, of course, no insurance at all. Um, so, you know, people have to pay out of pocket. Um, the only pseudo-insurance they have is if they get really sick and they go to a hospital, that would be covered by the state. Now, a paper recently came out suggesting, um, this is getting into some of the issues we've been talking about, the that the height differences between some populations are not due to nutrition, not due to, say, better prenatal care or other infant medical care. But differences in height across populations are a germ-based problem and that such a significant portion, for example, of India's population 
uses outdoor uh, there's no bathroom. Goes to the bathroom. There's no outside. bathroom. Goes oh, to the bathroom. Yes, they don't use that it's not outdoor plumbing. It's just they go to the bathroom outside so that bacteria is in the air and that this is a major factor in um, uh, the fact that Indians have much lower height on average than, say, other populations that you'd expect in a match. And that right. this, this would be a problem that could actually be fixed either by uh, government sanitation or increases in income that would allow indoor plumbing – uh, through private expenditures. Yep. I agree with that. The, the Dean Spears who'd done that work was a student here and has now started his own research institute in India. And he's getting a tremendous amount of attention for that work, both from the government of India and from the Gates Foundation. So it's a very good example of some terrific academic work that's fed very quickly um, into policy interest for that. And his evidence, to me, is really quite convincing. Um, I wouldn't say it was all those things, um, but the argument really is that this is an important part. And also, it, it's you have to be a little bit careful about using the word nutrition um, because it's too easy to equate nutrition with eating food. And this is to do with nutrition and malnutrition. But malnutrition is, is some sort of... And the way I think of malnutrition is that you're not as tall as you ought to be, um, or you're too skinny. Um, and that's could be because you've got too little food, but it also could be that there's too much of a tax on your body through disease or work or something else. So, you know, the food intake is not the only part, um, of what we like to call net nutrition, which is how much your body actually absorbs and is capable of growing and getting bigger. And that distinction is extremely important because I think there's been much too much focus just on food and getting enough food to people and not enough on sanitation, on disease, and indeed on work. Um, a lot of kids and a lot of adults in India do back-breaking manual labor, and that eats up a tremendous number of calories. And the other thing I wanted to point out is that obviously we don't intrinsically care about the height of a particular nation. It's a marker for or signal of other potential problems. Let's close with this, our health discussion with, I'd like to hear your observations on the complexity of health. We've obviously been talking about longevity because it's dramatic and it's a, usually a one zero, whether somebody's alive or not. We can, yep. we can fake, we can measure that pretty well. We can measure height pretty well. But really when we're talking about how healthy we've gotten, there's much more to it than just that we live longer. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's just some of that is the measurement problem. So health is so multidimensional. Um, and, you know, you could have things wrong with you that would be crippling for someone who is doing a different sort of job but not really get in your way at all. You know, if I'm a university professor, for instance, the fact that, um, you know, I don't have a great throwing arm is not really a problem. Um, whereas if I were a baseball player, not having a throwing arm would be a really terrible disability. Um, so it's very, very hard to get at. So the, one of the reasons we like height is because it's fairly straightforward to measure. You can get it on an individual basis and, you know, it's correlated with things we care about. Exactly as you said, it's a marker for other things that happen. One thing that it may be a marker for, which there's been a lot of work on, is it may be a marker um, in populations at least for um, cognitive development. So that, you know, if kids don't get enough to eat um, or, you know, they're running around where people are openly defecating, um, this may have long-term effects, not just on their height, but on their brain function. Sure. Um, and you really do worry about that. Though I think, <laughs> you know, given how well India is doing in the world these days, the idea of India with, you know, 20 extra IQ points for everybody is a little terrifying. No, no. I think it'd all be all to the good, uh, both for yeah, them and for us. Um, yeah. It's only terrifying to people who are, who think that that uh, world economy is a zero sum game. Uh, yeah. But let's move on to material prosperity, uh, okay. and and let's talk about. Of course, we have similar challenges as you point out, and I, and I want to mention, by the way, that uh, the book again is called the greatest the great escape. It's by Angus Deaton, my guest today, and it's really a beautifully written book. Uh, it, what I particularly like the fact that that you give caveats and uh, 
asides when when appropriate. It's not a uh, a rant or a um, a screed of any kind. It's a very educational book, and uh, you learn a lot from reading it. So I, I really commend you on both the clarity of the style and the uh, methodology of how you approach these very complex questions. Uh, Thank you very much. L- let's move on to this issue of material prosperity. Uh, how has the American standard of living changed over the last hundred years, and why is that even a meaningful concept? Because it's obviously very hard to measure. Right, and and some people might argue that it's just too hard um, to measure. Um, if you go back a couple of hundred years, the goods that we were consuming are just so different that it's very hard to make real comparisons. I mean, you know, how do you compare a Toyota with a horse? Um, you know, and more recently, there's all the electronics that we all love so much, none of which was there at all. So at some level, those problems are um, almost impossible um, to tackle. And we just string together, you know, 3% growth a year and then say well over 300 years, that's going to be really a lot. Um, and so, but it's clear, however you do this, that there's no um, question about the direction of change over the very, very long period. We're way better off than our grandparents were, and our grandparents were way, way better off than their grandparents were. So over the long run, there's been just a tremendous amount of progress. But we do try to measure it. There is yep. some, what's our, give me a ballpark, because a ballpark's, about, I think, the best you can do, but a ballpark's useful. Um, I've tried to stay away from those multiples over long terms, um, but, you know. I thought um, I caught one. (laughs) (laughs) Did you? Yeah, I thought you said four to eight or two to eight or something like that, two to eight times in the last hundred years, which I think is very much an underestimate, but. Yeah, it could be. Um, one of the things I do worry about and I don't have a solution to it is that, um, and well, let me back off there a little bit. I mean, one of the things that worries me about the last 50 years is this: the fact that the growth rate is steadily falling um, decade by decade, even, even before um, the Great Recession and the consequences of that. Um, and some people would claim that we're just missing more and more. Um, maybe you belong to that camp. Um, I I'm don't. not sure where I, I belong, <laughs> so I, I'm not sure... But, you know, there's a good case that we're not really adequately taking into account um, many of the new goods that come along and that make our lives much better. Um, things like iPads, um, everything beginning with I. Um, Google, the, which is Google, free. the internet. Google. Yeah. I mean, an unlimited amount of high-quality entertainment that's yeah. free on the internet. And, you know, the statisticians make some attempt to count that stuff. But a lot of it, I think, goes uncounted. Um, one of my friends who is a motor mechanic in his spare time was telling me the other day that one of the huge improvements in motor cars over the last 30 years is they don't rust out anymore. And that, you know, if you go back to our father's motor cars, you know, after you had it about 10 years, the thing, you know, fell apart because it had rusted out and it just doesn't happen anymore. And it's not clear we're picking up all those things. It's pretty clear we're not picking up all those things. What's not clear is how much difference it would make if we could. And, of course, then you get into these deep philosophical debates of the sort of anti-materialists who say all this stuff isn't any good for us anyway. And those like me who are actually impressed by a lot of this stuff and thinks it does make our lives very much better. Yeah, I tend to be in that camp. Um, I, I guess the, the other question which I find – um, the real challenge is, well, okay, suppose we are growing more slowly. Suppose these factors are not uh, very important. I think they are important. I think especially those of us who are over the age of 50, which would be me, who remember what the 70s were like. And when we're told that we haven't made much progress, say the average person hasn't made much progress since 1970 because median income corrected for inflation or median wages, which is a worse measure, even less accurate, but has done X, Y, or Z and hasn't gone up very much or it even right. it's gone down. Uh, I, I'm very skeptical of that. Having said that, it's not obvious what the implication of any of this is. People who like uh, bigger government will say, well, if we're not growing faster, the government needs to do more. People who like to have, who like smaller government could easily argue, well, the reason we're growing more slowly is because government's gotten bigger. And I, I don't think we have a very good handle 
on what the right policy response would be if indeed we are growing more slowly. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I don't think economists are very good at understanding economic growth in spite of, you know, a century of <laughs> hard work on the topic. So we know sort of general things like, you know, innovation and technical change are a really important part of economic growth. But beyond that, we don't seem to have got really very far. And the questions you're asking are quite a long way down the pike in terms of, you know, do we understand it well enough to know what we ought to do? And you gave a very good example that it's perfectly possible for, you know, not crazy people, I mean, people who are perfectly (laughs) sensible people, to take completely radically different views of why growth is slowing down. And, you know, I don't think economics right now is really capable. I mean, we can rule out some of the sillier explanations, but um, I I don't think we're very good at saying which of those two things is is really right. Yeah, I also like uh, Ed Lemer's perspective on this where he argues you look at the path of GDP in the United States over the last 50 years, it's it's – that's a period of time when there have been high tax rates, low tax rates, aggressive monetary policy, not so aggressive monetary policy, five million other changes in labor force participation by women, so, so many things. And yet it just goes up every year by pretty much 2% per capita, um, pretty steadily. So it's, it's falling a bit. I mean, it's <laughs> not bit. absolutely yeah. steady. Right. Yeah. That's true. Well, I do think that's important because if that decline is real, even if you don't believe the numbers that say there's no progress at all at the middle. I think the the fact that the cornucopia seems to be drying up a little bit does make politics a lot harder. I agree. Um, because you're fighting over a you know pie that's not growing or not growing as fast as it was. So let's talk about inequality, which um, measured inequality appears to be rising both in the United States and other countries. Um, there's so not in Latin America, which is historically the home of. So talk about that. Talk about talk about what we know about the trends as measured, and what might be the causes of those changes. Well, I, it's clear that it's you know, what's the word people like to use multifactorial, <laughs> meaning there's a lot of things going on in this. But there, there is, with the exception of Latin America, um, and it's not quite clear why that's the case. That this. Um, worldwide increase in inequality. Um, That said, it's very important to realize that the U.S. is quite exceptional in this among rich countries as to the level um, of inequality. So, you know, the European countries, which for a long time fought off this rising inequality, um, Germany, France, or Japan, not Europe, but in the OECD, um, have stopped or not, I, I'm not sure they've stopped fighting or they were ever fighting, but the, the the inequality is beginning to rise there too. And that especially seems to be the case at the very top. Um, so, you know, it's obviously got something to do with widespread things. Globalization is obviously part of it. Um, technical change um, is clearly part of it. And high technical change seems like a good thing for the reasons we've been talking about. And also, you would expect when there's major technical change in the economy that some people are going to get very, very rich um, as a result of it. And I think to some extent that's fine, at least provided um, the social rewards and the private rewards are reasonably well aligned um, with one another. Um, so one of the examples I give in the book is I don't think anyone regrets that Steve Jobs got rich um, by giving us all the stuff that came out of Apple, um, we might not feel the same way about the bankers in Wall Street who invented unbelievably clever derivatives that made them rich at the expense of the rest of us. I also worry about the healthcare sector, where a lot of people have very strong incentives to create and sell for very high prices drugs and other devices that in some cases do a tremendous amount of good, but in a lot of cases don't. So these are cases where the social and private incentives are not very well aligned and then bad things begin to happen. So that's sort of what I worry about. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Um, long, long make LeBron James make lots of money while he's healthy and 
may the Wall Street bankers lose their um, implicit subsidy from bailouts and other other things. And their exemption from ever going to jail. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be a well, it seems to be a mistake. Um, now, let, let me raise an issue that we've talked about before on this program that I think you mentioned in the book very briefly, but I, to me, it's a, an important issue that's been neglected in the inequality data, which is demographics. Most of the demographic change, most of the inequality data that you see is over households and over families. And when you do that, you and you compare people over time, uh, you're taking different snapshots at different points in time. When right. there's dramatic demographic change, as there has been in the United States over the last 40 years, yep. you're going to mismeasure, you're going to attribute some of the changes in, in family structure to the economic system. And yep. I suspect that the changes in the world that are delayed or accelerated, the fact that all nations aren't changing at the same rate in this phenomenon is because their divorce rate isn't quite – and their family creation rate is different from ours. Just for an example, the number of households in the United States with no earners or one earner has changed dramatically over the last 30 years. Um, right. That's going to dramatically affect – there could be economic reasons for that. Some of them have to do with the, the effectiveness of the economy, but some of them have to do with social changes that have nothing to do with the economy. Right. I agree with that. I talked about that a little bit. <clears throat> I think um, there, there's that demographic change is a very important part of the increase in family inequality. Um, one of the things that people don't, I think, widely know is that if you were to go back into the 1950s or even the 60s, the sort of madman era, as it were, um, the high-earning men um, were married to highly educated women, but those highly educated women didn't work. Um, so the higher earning, the higher earnings the man had, the less likely was his wife to work in the labor force. Um, over the last 60 years, that's completely reversed um, to the point where the high earning men and women are now married to spouses who are also high earning men and women. Um, and that has the obvious effect of, in the 50s, that dampened down inequality because the rich people were paired off with people who weren't earning so much or anything at all. And now you're pairing, you know, a couple of lawyers who are earning 300 grand each, um, and that's sort of powering up the top. And then the other part which you mentioned is there's a big increase in, you know, people in one-person families or one-adult families. Um, who are down at the bottom there. So th those changes are just tremendously important. And I think one of the things we've realized, and it is very important, is one shouldn't think of inequality in terms of a single number. You just have to parse it out in different parts of the income distribution, what's happening here, what's happening there, and so on. Other, um, it's a very complex picture. The other example you give in the book, which is quite, um, I think, often missed, is that wages – which are often measured pre-tax and pre-transfer, that is before yep. government's intervention, are going to be affected by, one, they're going to be affected by government programs of various kinds, but also uh, health, rising health care costs are probably being paid for by in the form of lower wages in workplaces sure. yeah. where the employer is providing an insurance subsidy due to the tax code. And as a result, measured wages are falling or would be larger if healthcare costs weren't rising so much. And so that's why I always suggest that when we want to talk about inequality, we ought to – and labor share, for example, wages, unfortunately, is not the right thing to look at. It's compensation. Yes and no. I mean, let me first agree with you and then disagree a little bit. I mean, the, the agreement is that I think – this is a disaster because people don't understand that this is happening. And so people don't perceive the cost of health care. Um, and they don't understand that it's making their wages a lot lower than they otherwise would. And so they think this health care is coming for free. And that takes a lot of the pressure off to reform it and get rid of this absurd system we have. So that that's the bit I think where I 100% agree. Um, it's clear that, I mean, the CBO and other people have put together estimates of what the income distribution would look like if you impute those things back in again. So, you know, people are getting a lot of health care through the government, through Medicare and through Medicaid. 
Um, and those, if you add those back in, uh, valued at something or other, um, then, you know, there's been less increase in inequality, um, less decline in real wages. Uh, if you go to, if you like a compensation basis or you add the benefits back in. Um, the problem though you could imagine is if we get to a state where say 50% of the economy is being sucked up by healthcare. That's right. Then, you know, you can't. <laughs> That's not good news. <laughs> <laughs> right. And also you can't eat that healthcare for breakfast. You That's know, right. you can't feed your kids on it. And so it may be worth something, but at some point it becomes not worth very much if it's bankrupting you at the same time. And you can't really do what a lot of economists do, which is add the value of that back on and say, okay, you're all right because you're getting this huge amount of medical care. Okay, but I don't want that huge amount That's of right. medical care. I'd much That's rather right. have something else. Um, so that that's sort of a problem, I think, in the way that people do these calculations. There's another measurement issue, which is a, a subtle one, but it always – I find it striking, which is if you are going to look at wages as a measure of material well-being and leave out that healthcare part, you're often going to be correcting for inflation, which you have to do if you're going to make comparisons over time, right. using a measure that includes healthcare costs. So right. you distort – you're not – as you point out, you can't eat – you can't eat your health care, but if you want to find out what you're able to eat, you shouldn't be using a measure that includes a disproportionate share of something health care that's in the other part of compensation. Right. Um, right. Now, I wanted to ask you uh, about poverty, but we don't have time. I have so many other things I want to talk about. I want to recommend the discussion of poverty rates uh, and the measurement of poverty in the book because it's very thoughtful and very interesting, but I want to move on. Um, I want to go back a little bit in, in terms of the history of the debate over prosperity, and you talk about the worries people used to have about overpopulation. Uh, yeah. What were those worries, and why have they been somewhat uh, muted? Well, I think they've been muted by the fact, which is, um, you know, is, is a, a real discipline on people eventually. It just takes a while to pan out. Um, I mean, if you go back to the 60s and so on, there was this enormous um, population explosion, which was clearly a one-time event um, because, you know, antibiotics, the germ theory of disease, had come to what was then called the third world. Um, that meant a lot of children who would otherwise have died um, survived. And so you got these enormous increases in population. Um, we talked earlier about life expectancy going up at... Um, you know, one year every four. Um, and in those years, in some countries, life expectancy went up more than a decade um, per decade. I mean, it was growing faster than time was passing. So you just got enormous decreases in infants and child mortality rates. So these kids survived and there was just an enormous number of people there. Um, of course, this was not a permanent, I mean, it was a long-lived but not permanent situation because eventually... Um, Mothers and fathers realized they didn't have as many kids to have as many surviving kids, and so they cut back on their fertility. But of course, it took a long, long time for that to work its way through the system. So that rate of growth of population has greatly slowed. Um, the the standard worry, I think, was this very simplistic one, um, which is what I call the lump fallacy, or not just I who call it that, which is, you know, there's a fixed lump of stuff, and if you have more people sharing it, there's going to be less stuff for each, and if you have more and more people, eventually there really isn't enough to go around, and we all starve to death or some horrible consequence. Of course, <coughs> as many economists, especially at the time, um, argued these people are born not just with mouths, but with hands and brains. And in, you know, the famous debate, um, the economist Julian Simon argued that more people was actually good for us on a per capita basis because of all the ideas and all the help that came with them. So it's more like when a whole bunch of extra people come to dinner, um, you know, you say, oh, my God, what are we going to eat? But they brought a lot of food with them or they know how to grow things in the yard. And, you know, in the end, everybody's better off. Well, they brought and a that's stove. And that seems to have happened. Yeah, yeah they yeah, brought a stove. Exactly. Uh, it's just, it is what happened. And yet it's interesting. I think there still is a great deal of anxiety, part of it for environmental reasons, which are not not the same issues. Yes. Obviously, it's a different, right. di potentially different set of issues. Uh, maybe the same. Julian Simon, I think, would argue it is the same. But 
um, India, China have, are much more populous and magically have a higher standard of living. And I think most people find that bewildering because it does go against their arithmetic preconceptions of X divided by Y. If Y gets bigger, the, that should get it smaller, but it doesn't because X is a constant when Y gets bigger. Uh, and that's, I think, a tribute to the economic way of thinking. Um, my son, my 15-year-old son asked me last night if I thought immigration was bad for America because it reduced the number of jobs. And I said, do you think the fact that we have a lot more people is bad for America than 50 years ago because we have so many more people? There must be fewer jobs for, the, for everyone out, for everyone. And, of course, that's not true. And it's just right. very hard for people to think in those terms. It just does not come naturally. I, I think that's right. I think there's also, you know, the fact that these are people not like us is part of this, oh, yeah. the, is the underside of this yeah, debate, that's right. too. Uh, let's talk about uh, happiness for a minute. Uh, okay. We had uh, uh, Justin Wolfers and Betsy Stevenson on talking about this this issue in a previous episode. Uh, the question is, does wealth standard of living lead to more happiness? And Easterlin is on one side of this debate, Wolfers and Stevenson on another. Where do you stand on it and why? Um, I don't think the debate is completely closed, but I'm, I think, more convinced by the Wolfers and Stevenson work than I am by – um, the Easterland work. Um, Easterland relies fairly heavily on what happened in China. I don't think the Chinese data really support those inferences. So we could get pretty technical on this. But actually, a I think this, this debate, I think, is still pretty much open. I mean, I think Betsy and Justin made a very, very good case for the opposition, as it were. Um, I think the Easterland thing has enormous appeal to many. Um, especially the anti-materialists um, in the world who think, you know, who worry about the environment, who think consuming more is not good for us. Um, so that's not going to go away um, anytime soon. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it is a little bit puzzling. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not an, I think this is still a frontier issue in research and I think we're going to learn a lot more. Um, I think Gallup deserves an enormous amount of credit for this too because they've been collecting these terrific data um, all over the world and they've been doing it since late 2005. So, you know, given another 10 years of that, we'll know a lot of the answers to these questions. I don't know. I'm a little bit skeptical and I, and I, and I would raise the issue I raised before about growth. If we found out that uh, – and I, I'm pretty confident, by the way, that, that the anti-materialists are, are right in the sense that uh, – Whoever has the most toys when they die uh, doesn't win. Uh, I think they're onto something there. I think we all have some awareness that money doesn't make us, quote, happy. We also understand that happiness is a very rich concept, and you do some nice work in the book distinguishing between happiness, satisfaction, meaning, et cetera. But if we really discovered that that all of this rat race is a mistake, that we're no happier than – that you and I who have a – ridiculously high standard of living by historical standards are no happier than the uh, someone living in the bush in, in Australia, mm-hmm. then what? <laughs> What's well, we know that's <laughs> not true. What you just said is not true because, um, you know, Good if point. you look at the Gallup data, um, you know, people in Togo think their lives are terrible and people in Denmark think their lives are terrific. And, you know, that part of it is certainly, that's Fair only enough. one concept of happiness, of course. So we do know there's some sense in which people think their lives are much better when they're better off, at least across countries. What we don't really know is, you know, what did the Danes think 50 years ago or 100 years ago? Because, you know, the Togolese could be just unhappy because they have television and they see what a nice time the Danes are having. And, you know, whereas 100 years ago, our ancestors didn't know that they didn't have iPads because they didn't yeah. know what iPads were. Or a flush um, so toilet. So that sort of issue is not really resolved, I think. Yeah, no, nobody in 1900 sat, was miserable because they didn't have a flush toilet, uh, although most of them <laughs> didn't, uh, or maybe none of right. them did. Um, no, I think some of them didn't. Few. Thomas Crapper. It's right, right around then. Yeah. Uh, let's close with um, – the issue you close with in the book, which is uh, foreign aid. So, one issue, as you point out, it's you know it's it's obvious that much of the reduction in inequality in the in the world is due to two countries, uh, India and China, growing very rapidly. 
uh, and and have brought up millions of millions and millions of people out of the worst situation into a better situation. There are still a billion or so people who live in appalling and very depressing conditions. We'd like to help them. We have this idea that we would anyway. And you come down very pessimistically at the end of the book uh, on our ability to do so and our ability to use foreign aid to help those people. Why do you come to that conclusion and um, what do we know about what might what might possibly be better? Okay. Well, um, I'm not quite as pessimistic as you summarized it there because I think there's a lot of things we can do. Um, they're just not usually classified as foreign aid. So, for instance, we have cotton subsidies in the United States, which are bankrupting farmers in Africa. Um, we sell arms to poor people around the world. I mean, what do we think we're doing if we're really trying to help them by selling them guns? Um, I think the answer to that's pretty obvious. We're not, well, trying, we're not trying to help them, but let's go we're ahead. We're not trying to help them, <laughs> but I suspect the whole lady enterprise is a little bit like that. I yeah. mean, it's not being run for them. It's yeah. being run for us, yeah. in yeah. which case we should sort of stop pretending. Um, but, you know, there are countries like Britain who don't, um, you know, who, who make their aid very explicitly humanitarian. Anyway, I think we could also have a new part of the National Institutes of Health, which specializes in the research into the diseases that affect poor people around the world. So, you know, the, these are things that we really could spend money on and which would make the lives of poor people around the world much better. The, the sort of aid I'm against is the aid in poor countries, meaning, you know, you give money, large, large sums of money to the governments of poor countries. So you've got these African countries where for the last 30 years or so, all of government revenue has come from donors outside the country. And to me, it just seems transparently obvious that you can't have a proper country that way, that people need some sort of contract between the government and those who are governed in which one set of people pay taxes and the government gives people something back in exchange, including things like health care and education and all the other things that we've talked about. And if the government is getting all its money from USAID or DFID or AUSAID or wherever it comes from, then the government has no incentive to do any of those things at all. Um, so effectively, it's effectively using its own population as sort of hostages to extract money from rich countries. And it's not acting in the interest of its population at all. So that's what I really worry about. I mean, if I had, could do one thing, what I'd do is say no country in the world should get more than 20% of government revenue from outside sources. I don't know how you'd enforce that. But that's the sort of thing I think would be really helpful. So the people on the other side of this debate, uh, Jeffrey Sachs comes to mind, um, maybe Paul Collier, they they have a different viewpoint. What would they say in response to you? You, you suggest something that, as you said, it seems, seems pretty obvious that if you give despots and tyrants lots of money, it's going to make them going to make them richer and sustain their power rather than help the people you're trying to help. What, what do they have in mind? Do you know? Um, I think they see the whole thing as sort of an engineering problem um, in which, you know, you've got – need so many doses of vaccine to vaccinate all the kids without taking into account and who that might um, – you know, how that might actually work out in practice. Um, there's a wonderful new book by Nina Monk um, called The Idealist, um, who – she shadowed Jeff Sachs for five or six years and lived in some of the Millennium Development Villages. And that book is like reading Conrad, you know, it's a descent into insanity. Um, these things just went very, very badly wrong. And I just don't think that technical approach works. And I think we've known that for a really long time. I, I like to give the example of McNamara, you know, the led the whiz kids at the Ford Motor Company and, you know, discovered that you could do marvelous technical solutions to a lot of technical problems like building motor cars, but it didn't work so well in Vietnam and it didn't work so well in the World Bank either. And, you know, development is a political problem. It's not a financial or an engineering problem. And I think that's the big mistake that gets made there. And I think some people would respond, not Sachs and others, but others would respond that, now that's just too that's just too defeatist. Um, we can't fix their politics overnight. Uh, I would say we can't ever. We might not have any successful way of fixing it, but let's leave that alone. 
They'd say, well, we can't fix that. So what are we going to do, nothing? And you suggested some things that we could do. You know, the NIH working on third world diseases. Yep. I don't think that's going to happen for a bunch of different reasons. But people do want to feel like they're doing something. What what might they do other than lobbying their government for unrealistic policies that aren't going to happen anyway? I, I disagree with the unrealistic policies that aren't going to happen. If those good people who were doing those were out there screaming and yelling in Washington and creating a lobby against those things or for those things, I think there's a really good chance that they would happen. And I think right now what they're doing with the best of possible intentions is actually hurting people in poor countries. And I think it's a really bad thing to do. So that's what I try to persuade my students here to do. And um, I debate this here with Peter Singer, for example, who's very much on the other side. Um, but I think, you know, these arguments, you read a lot of the aid agency literature, the people who are really close to the ground in those countries. And this question of undermining governments is something they're very familiar with. And they may be a little bit more optimistic about how to handle it, but... I've been very surprised and very pleased at just how sympathetic people really close to the ground have been to the arguments in the book. You give a number, which I I think I've heard before, but it, it's a I assume it's a it's a rough estimate, but it's in the ballpark. Which is over the last fifty years, we've given about five trillion dollars. We excuse me, the developed world has transferred to the underdeveloped or less developed world five trillion. Dollars, and the impact is approximately zero. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a rough guess. It, it's not a. It's not accurate, but it's a. It's not. It's in the ballpark. It's, it, right. it's about zero. The two nations that have had wild success, India and China, are not part of the aid nexus. Generally, they get a trivial amount. Yep. Doesn't that carry some weight with the folks who are skeptical? Yeah. <laughs> it does with me. When I was in Britain talking about the book, one of the things that came up over and over again, and it's been a big issue in Britain, is why are we giving aid to a country that has a space program? Meaning India. Yeah. Well, do, um, do we give much aid to India? Well, the, the amounts from British point of view are not trivial. The amounts per capita by India are trivial, so... And in fact, I think British aid to India is stopping, not because the Brits are stopping it, but because the Indians don't care to take it anymore. Um, so maybe the space program and the lack of need for aid are, are sort of um, coming together. <coughs> but yeah, I, I do find quite convincing that argument that, you know, and you look at the other end, there are all these little island nations all around the world that get huge amounts of aid per capita. and. You know, there's not much happening there. I guess the response is we just have to we have to do it better. Well, that that's one response, um, and I'm semi sympathetic to that. You know, you haven't talked about what would I think most people think would be the great AIDS success, which is that there are many people alive on antiretroviral therapy today who would otherwise be dead because they're HIV positive. And those lives have been saved, and much of that has come from um, PEPFAR and the Global Fund and so on. And that's clear where money going into the country has saved a lot of lives, and that has to count for a lot. So my counter-argument is not that that's not good. I don't have any argument that says it's not good. Um, it's just that the undermining associated with that um, still goes on. And that, you know, we're trying to design and run other countries' healthcare systems from outside the country. And in the end, that's neither sustainable nor desirable. Um, well, we seem to be, uh, we seem to be struggling to run our own. So maybe well, we ought to, you know. <laughs> there is that. Yeah. It yeah. reminds me of when a reporter once asked me what we should be doing to help people in Africa get better education. And I suggested that since we didn't seem to be very good at getting Americans better education, maybe we should just kind of focus on that. Not not so much because it isn't important to help Africans get more education. We just don't know enough to be helpful. Right. I think that's right. My guest today has been Angus Deaton. Angus, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much. It's um, been a real pleasure talking to you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast 
and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.